0: Welcome to The Book Podcast, where we discuss books about The Book, the Bible, with your hosts Scott Moffitt, Gabriel Penfield, and Gary Karwaski. We
1: go as deep as we can go, look as hard as we can look, but
2: we only stretch the surface
3: Hello to our listeners, and welcome to the 23rd podcast of the book. Our goal is to interview authors who have written important books about the book. As we discuss their work, it is our goal to inform, to enrich your spiritual life. And as you know, there are many great books available to read, but only really a few are worthy of your time and effort. So our goal is simple to introduce you, our listeners, to those who have written books that are certainly well done and worthy of your reading. Today we have with us an author who is well known to students of biblical prophecy, Jeff Kinley. He's authored 20 books and he speaks at conferences around the world. Jeff began his ministry life in churches serving in various roles for 30 years. He was the founding pastor of a church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Jeff earned his BA from the University of Arkansas and a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary. He overlapped the same years with Gary and I while attending seminary. Jeff has appeared on many television shows, including Fox and Friends, and uh, the Glenn Beck Show, and many national radio programs. Jeff and his wife have been married for 30-plus. How many exactly is it, Jeff?
1: Uh, actually, 40. We just celebrated 40. So. 40 years?
3: <laughs> and you have three sons. bio.
1: <laughs> right, right.
3: Clayton, Stewart, and Davis, and the old bio said that you are currently the president of Main Thing Ministries. Is that true? Okay, That's good. Correct, yes. And I am your host, Scott Moffat, and I'm joined by fellow pastor Gary Karwaski, my gran- my grandson, Gabriel Penfield, who is a <laughs> student, <yet>. at, <laughs> who is a student <laughs> at Word of Life at Scroon Lake, New York, and Jeff, welcome to the book podcast. You, I assume, gentlemen.
1: Pleasure to be with you.
3: I assume this will be the highlight of your speaking career. during <laughs> on the book podcast. <laughs> I'm con- going to take
1: a screenshot and have this framed on my wall. There you go. That's I'm gonna do.
3: <laughs> I must confess that it amazes me how many books you've written since we were in seminary together. I've never written a book. And uh, I've heard it said that if you cannot write, you pretend to preach. I think Gary said that, by the way, Um, my wife and I watched the movie based upon your book the other day. Uh, I think it was called greater. We enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We enjoyed it very much. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for joining us. Let me begin with this question. Um, We look at your book as it was in the days of Noah, and it's very interesting titles that most folks will recognize coming directly from Scripture. So my question is, why did you write this book in the first place?
1: That is a great question. Well, uh, it began back in the um, originally, the original edition of the book back in 2013. My agent called me and said, hey, uh, I hear they're making a movie about Noah. And if we know anything about Hollywood, we know they're going to get it wrong. And I said, yeah, that's true. He said, well, somebody needs to write a book about the real Noah and about what Jesus said about as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. And he said, um, would you be interested in doing that? I said, yeah, I think I would. And I said, when do you need an outline? He said, last week. <laughs> and he said, I said, OK. So I, I put together an outline. It's a long story, but um, it was really a God story how I just basically locked myself in my study for eight weeks, and did nothing but write and research in order to write the book in time Mm -hmm. for it to debut uh, in April of 2014, so that uh, it came out the same time the movie did, and so that very morning, uh, I found myself on Fox and Friends, you know, talking to the nation about, you know, Noah's faith, and uh, that Jesus Christ is the ark, and that type of thing, Mm -hmm. so that's why I, that's really kind of um, I think I'd written almost 30 books at that time and that this was the first prophecy based book I'd ever written so uh, it became a number one bestseller and um, you know it affected a lot of people's lives so
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um most people take the flood and Noah and the stories in Genesis as being allegorical mm-hmm. telling us something well not in our camp, but in most other camps, that it tells us something about God. How does this view that you hold differ from most people's view of those events today?
1: Yeah, I think just two things. I think one is that it all depends upon how you approach Scripture. I mean if you approach Scripture that it is a basically a book of allegory, a book of symbols, a book of pictures and stories, then you know you're going to come to a lot of different conclusions about what's written in the Bible. Uh, miraculous events like the flood, like Jonah and the great fish, like Elijah and the chariot of fire, all these things, even the miracles of Christ. But but, uh, but I take the Bible to be historical, um, that it's written in plain English, plain, uh, plain uh, literature, rather, um, Hebrew and Greek, and that we should take it at its plain um, literary value. I mean, you know, I think it's Tim LaHaye who said, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up with nonsense— and so just take, taking the Bible as literal in context, then you're going to interpret Genesis a certain way. You'll interpret the flood a certain way, and you'll interpret the book of Revelation and future prophecy in a certain way. And then the second thing I would just say is that, you know, Christ referred to Noah as a historical event. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us.
0: So why, why should we take it literally? Like, what's the importance of, I mean, I can just throw out the creation account, throw out the flood account. Yeah. Why, why would that matter? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think it matters because it tells us something about God. Uh, Every time we encounter something that is catastrophic, or in this case, apocalyptic, uh, there's something very important that God wants us to know about himself. And in in the Noah story, uh, there's several things that kind of rise to the surface, if you will. And one of them just being the sorrow in the heart of God. Mm -hmm. I mean, we think about the flood as being a horrific tale of judgment, and it is. Mm-hmm. But when we look deeper, we find out that God's heart was broken. Uh, these were people that were created in the image of God, and yet uh, sin had just so permeated the human race. It was such a pandemic of sin in that day that it got to the point where God just says, I'm going to have to wipe everybody off the planet and start over again. Mm-hmm. And so, unless we see that as something that actually happened, then again, we're going to start drawing all kinds of other conclusions about the rest of the Bible. So, the Bible's kind of like a big chain; every link links to something else. When you break one, you kind of break them all.
2: Yeah, yeah. The uh, the flood and the ark. I think there's uh, some lessons for mankind with regard uh, to that object lessons. I guess we can learn from. Uh, could you share a couple of those with us?
1: Yeah, well, you know, in Matthew 24, 37, Jesus said, speaking to his disciples about the second coming of Christ, he said um, that leading up to that, it'll be just as it was in the days of Noah. And he he talked about some general characteristics of that day. And then when you go back to Genesis 6 and you examine exactly what was the generation of Noah like, uh, you find that it was a really an entire human race, perhaps even billions of people at that time, some estimates are, that were engaged in, um, in gross immorality. Uh, there are really several characteristics of the days of Noah. One was just the godlessness of the day. And when you trace uh, humanity throughout the book of Genesis, and you end up in, in Genesis 6, then you discover that uh, mankind had apostatized completely from God, mm-hmm. had gone his own way. In fact, Genesis 6 tells us that every thought of every person's heart was only evil continually. And I have a hard time wrapping it's my head up. around that Damn. concept, but I mean, if, I, I just pictured in the book, as Mardi Gras on steroids. I mean, everybody <laughs> was just, you know, it, you was, it was San Francisco and Babylon and everybody else just kind of poured into one. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And if you, I used to tell people, you know, you're, you're at college, Gabe, you used to tell people when you go away to a secular college, my definition of college is all your wild friends without their parents. And mm-hmm. that's basically what college really is, you know, for, for most people, obviously not your experience. But that's kind of what the whole earth was like. It was yeah. mm-hmm. everybody was was a frat house. And and so scripture tells us that it was a very ungodly mm-hmm. time.
2: Let me let me counter that just a little bit though, just for the sake of argument. Uh Matthew 24, Jesus says they were just doing natural things or eating, drinking, giving in marriage, being married. Those are just natural, normal things. What's so bad about any of that?
1: Yeah. Well, there's nothing bad in and of itself about any of those things. I think the point Christ was making there is that. They were totally unconcerned about God. Uh, they were absorbed with themselves, with just doing those daily activities. And uh, and when we look at what what we see in the end times, people are going to completely be absorbed in, in themselves again. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to be a totally um, self-absorbed. I mean, we're in a selfie generation right now. But in the mm-hmm. end times, it's going to be all about number one. We read about that all throughout the, Re- the book of Revelation. What what's a fascinating study is when you look at humanity and trace the the devolving nature of humanity, even throughout the book of Revelation, it goes from bad to worse to unbelievably bad and wicked and evil, where they're blaspheming God at the end. So that's why we have to go back to Genesis and really kind of see, well, you know, what else was going on during that day? And that's where we find that that pandemic of godlessness to the point where there's only one really righteous man or family yeah. on the entire planet.
3: Yeah, your, your whole thesis is revolving around Genesis 6. The first few verses, which is really a a critical text and a very controversial text. People take uh, a variety of different views of that. I remember when Gary and I went to Moody Bible Institute uh, for one year together that we that was one of the papers we had to write was who are the Nephilim and who are the sons of God? How did you determine and, and come up with an answer to that question?
1: Yeah, well, that phrase, uh, the sons of God, b'nai Elohim, in the Hebrew language, uh, refers to angelic beings throughout Scripture. And, of course, any angelic beings that would take wives for themselves among the sons of men would obviously have to be demonic creatures. Then you have to ask yourself the question, how did that happen, mm-hmm. You know, physically yeah. speaking? But then you look at the two angels who came uh, to, to Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, and these were men with physical bodies. They had they had skin. They had bones, and they they were uh, enough attractive to where the men of Sodom wanted to have relationships with them, you know, sexual relationships with them. Uh, and uh, so so yeah, apparently angels can take on human form. Um, they don't mm-hmm. procreate in heaven, but either these men were de- de- these were demon possessed men at the time. Or somehow angels took on human form to where they took wives for themselves. And, of course, the offspring became these men of renown uh, in that day. They called them Nephilim. Mm-hmm.
2: Nephilim. Um, why is that so critical? Uh, this, this We'll call them demon-human hybrid. What makes yeah. that so critical, especially in the light of the promise for evangel- evangelum in Genesis? Hard word to say in Genesis 3.15. Mm-hmm. Yeah, us bring it is that a, together. It is a
1: tongue, it's a tongue twister. You know, absolutely. Well, you think about this. I mean, God had already told the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. Right. So, so Satan knew that as long as there's a human race that, that was human, then there would one day come one who would come and defeat him uh, for all time. So he had to taint or to poison uh, the human stream, if you will. And so I believe that was behind Satan's motivation. Now, scripture doesn't come out and just say that, uh, but it appears to be what Satan's motivation was to try to, in essence, fix it to where God couldn't win the election, if you will. You know, yeah. God couldn't produce that, one, that seed of the woman that was in the image of God as opposed to the image of, of a demon or the image of Satan. Uh, and thus he could prevent the Messiah from coming and prevent his own downfall. So everything, again, is for Satan's own self-preservation.
2: Can we bring uh, Jude 6 into that? A little more more evidence. Jude 6, I think, is powerful. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jude 6 talks about these angels who did not keep their own domain, uh, but left those domains. And God says he has put those into chains, in the special darkness, into an abyss uh, until the day of judgment. I believe those very well could be those angels or some of those angels from Genesis 6.
0: Yeah, there's two things that kind of really stood out to me. Um, one was just how, the population of the earth back then. Right. And just realizing it was probably, what did your book say? Like seven, eight, nine billion people. It could have been conceivably. Yeah. Because yeah. if you think about it, people are living to be seven, eight,
1: nine hundred years old. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of kids.
0: Yeah. And that's what we see on earth today, right? We're pushing 8 billion people and it's some similarities yeah. there. But, um, another thing was Methuselah. Right. And that's one thing we're able to be taught here at Word of Life um, in the Genesis 1 through 11 classes. Methuselah means when I die or when he dies, it's going to be sent. Right. But can you explain a little bit about this Methuselah and why he matters? He's not just the oldest person, right? There's something else about him. That's a good one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because, you know, Scripture calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. and you know, we don't have any Noah's texts to his sermons. But Noah preached Mm -hmm. to his generation uh, a a message of judgment, a message of repentance, I believe. And every time he swung that hammer, he was sending a message. And every time he spoke, he was sending a message. Mm -hmm. But there was also someone else uh, in his bloodline, Methuselah. And uh, this man, the Bible says he did live to be 969 years old. But as you mentioned, his name means when he dies, it will be sent or it shall come. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? Mm. And then when you just do the math uh, in Genesis, you figure out that the year that Methuselah died was the year the flood was mm-hmm. sent.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I speculate in the book, because the Bible doesn't tell us, but you know, it would be just like God for Methuselah to it, it, in, exhale his last breath and the first drop of rain uh, begins mm-hmm. to fall. And just what an ominous uh, moment that would have been. And so mm-hmm. in essence, you were talking about the, the grace and mercy and compassion of God. Every time someone said the name Methuselah uh, they were preaching the echo of Noah's message uh, every time he walked through the town at his age people knew there's that guy that when he dies it shall be sent and so um, so God w- was not without a witness uh, through even this ominous name Methuselah and most people don't know that about him but I think that's a very important uh, significant uh, piece of that whole narrative
2: I'd never heard that before and I thought it was a really good point
3: yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we skipped over a little bit the point that Noah was living in a godless society, mm-hmm. um, that he was the only righteous man left and maybe his family. Um, but it says that Noah found favor with God. Now, we live in challenging times. We live in a godless society here, and it's it's mm-hmm. propelling forward. It's, it's becoming more and more godless every day. And my question is a little bit more practical one here. Uh, If Noah lived by himself or with just a few other people and he earned God's favor or he, he knew God's favor, however you want to say it, how can we today live with that same tension of being in a godless society and trying to remain and live faithfully to God?
1: That's a great question. I I think one way is through looking at the examples of the people in Scripture God has given us. I mean, we say, well, I'm the only Christian in my class. I'm the only Christian in my office. I'm the only Christian in my neighborhood or whatever. You know, Noah was outnumbered perhaps billions to one. I mean, Mm -hmm. if there was any guy that's walking, you know, against the current swimming upstream, it's Noah. And we talk about things like peer pressure and, you know, the cultural pressure that's on us today. Mm -hmm. But look, I mean, Noah lived in a day where nobody was applauding him. I mean, there was there were no attaboys, you know, mm-hmm. there were no pats mm-hmm. on the back except from God, maybe uh, his wife. And for mm-hmm. several years while he was building the ark, he, he had no help from his sons. He may have had some other relative help we don't know about. Right. But uh, but it was a very lonely thing. Noah walked a lonely path. Mm-hmm. And today we see ourselves much like the early church and in, in Acts marginalized, you know, pushed to the edges of society. Uh, the first century had their own version of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they would essentially erase your name from the record books, you know, or from the, the registries of, of the cities. And we're experiencing that today. I mean, the world is continually turning more and more anti-Christian. Uh, the spirit of antichrist is everywhere. And mm-hmm. I find that, you know, it's no longer you just the guy that used to stand on the street corner, you know, and, and preach the gospel. That was the guy that got all the heat. Nowadays, all you have to say is a man is a man, the woman is a woman, uh, and all of a sudden, the True. whole world's coming against you. I mean, think about how how basic that type of and it's not so much even morality; it's just basic biology. You're just you know saying something. God made the male and female, of, right. which really tells some, us uh, something of God's genius that He would put mm-hmm. that in Genesis one, and then Jesus would then repeat that same thing. You know. And obviously, the readers and original writers of Scripture didn't know that one day humanity would question even that, and that just tells you the level of satanic activity I think that's going on right now, and our preview to the days of Noah is that if Satan can get you to believe you're not a created being, if you're not a created being, maybe you're not even the gender or the the sex that mm-hmm. that you were born as, and that all gets you to to turn away from God essentially, and uh, gets you to to reject the biblical narrative. So.
3: What Noah's yeah. experience told me, and I've been asked this question before, if you landed on, a, on an island all by yourself, could you live the Christian life? That could, the answer is yes, because Noah did it. He was by himself. He was, he was a righteous man. And it doesn't matter. I, it's wonderful to have a church family and all that, but we can still live a godly life no matter if we're completely by ourselves or surrounded by godless people. We can still seek and find God's favor.
1: Yeah. I mean, you think about Elijah. I mean, Elijah was surrounded by the prophets Mm -hmm. of Baal. He thought he was the only one. It turns out he wasn't, Mm -hmm. but he he thought he was the only one. I mean, look at the early church, Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin, you know, being forced with that pressure. We must not, uh, can't stop obeying God. We have to speak Mm -hmm. of the things we've seen and heard. I mean, all Mm -hmm. throughout scripture, Paul and and his persecutions, and then today. So yeah, we can stand strong because the Bible says in 1 John 5, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So we are overcomers. Uh, In fact, that's what he said. It's our faith is is what overcomes the world. Everyone Mm -hmm. who believes in Jesus overcomes the world. And then Jesus said to the seven churches, To every one of them, he says, "To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes." So we're destined to be overcomers, but we can't do that unless we anchor ourselves to the Word of God and get our hearts right with uh, the God of the Word.
2: Yeah, you know, you can imagine the uh, the ridicule that Noah received from the people around him. Just he's building a giant boat in the middle of the land, and he says, "And he said, yeah, he's an idiot." (laughs) And he and he says it's going to rain, and they say, "What? What's rain?" And so Mm -hmm. that's the same kind of ridicule I think we have now. Oh, Mm -hmm. you believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman? Uh, And you're ridiculed for that. So it's the same Mm -hmm. kind of situation. One of the things I noticed about your book, too, and I'm adding a question here. um, Man, you really lay into the whole sex thing strongly, Mm -hmm. both prior to the flood and -hmm. now prior to the rapture. And you spend a Mm -hmm. lot of time talking about the... um, the uh strength of that drive. Let's uh let's unfold that a little bit more. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I have a chapter called Fifty Shades of Immorality. Mm-hmm. And uh in the chapter I examine, you know, what's going on in Noah's day. And you know, the Bible says uh in Genesis six that they were they had become corrupt. I just did a word study on that, you know, when I encountered that because you know logically you think, okay, here's all these people without God just doing whatever their flesh says, there's gonna be un unhindered. A sexual activity, uh, combined with all the violence that, that God says specifically brought the judgment for. But uh, but anyway, that word corrupt is the same word that, that Moses uses in the same author that Moses uses in Genesis 32 to talk about what the children of Israel were doing at the base of Mount mm-hmm. Sinai. That was basically wow. a national orgy party mm-hmm. there uh, while, Noah, while Moses was up on the mountain getting the 10 commandments. And so I, I believe that's exactly what was going on here. I mean, obviously we have it in the first part with Genesis six, uh, one and two with the sons of God and that, that illicit sexual activity. Uh, but that hasn't changed throughout history. But what has changed is society and cultures um, approach and approval and tolerance of certain deviant sexual activity. And so I just spend a lot of time talking about kind of where are we today with that how far have we strayed from God's original design? And it, it does, it goes beyond just the man and the woman being married. It goes to the point where people are engaging in all sorts of, of, you know, the sexual deviance that Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, first Corinthians chapter six. Obviously, we see in Leviticus and stuff and just the unnatural acts of homosexuality and lesbianism. and Now, the whole transgender delusion that's going on in the world today. And so, again, if you don't know who created you or what you even are, then sure, you're not going to you're going to be confused sexually as well. And all you have to go on is what they're doing, or what I feel I must do. Mm-hmm. And so people are essentially becoming animals. And mm-hmm. that's how we're treating a lot that's of true. teenagers in schools: like obey your your mm-hmm. your basic urges, yeah. do whatever you want to do, just be safe, you know. So, uh, see, I impact that quite a bit.
0: Yeah. So you can see these horrible things happening, right? God sent a flood because he has a just nature, right? He has to do that. But a lot of people see the difference, right? You have in the Old Testament, you have a God that's willing to send a flood. Right. Promises afterwards he's never going to flood the earth again, but he floods the earth. And then you see in Joshua um, wiping out the nations, right? Wiping out this whole Canaanite nation. Um, Coincidentally, that's Ham's son, Canaan. That's the curse to fulfill the curse. (laughs) But um, can you talk a little bit? And a lot of people have that division, right? This Old Testament God who's just, wrathful, angry compared to the New Testament God that's willing to allow this to happen on earth now, right? All the stuff today, all the stuff in the past, right? And so they draw this division of an evil God or maybe not evil, but mm-hmm. a just God, a wrathful God versus the loving God. Can you kind mm-hmm. of explain that difference in that kind of um, paradox?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, we, we look at the old Testament. God was really angry and in the new Testament, he got nice. He sent <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And here's Jesus with kids on his lap and, you know, he's making parties for everybody and everybody comes get free food, doing miracles and that type of thing. But essentially what that does is is it's sort of a cherry picking of the Old Testament, New Testament. Because when you look at the Old Testament, you have all these verses that talk about the Lord is full of compassion and grace and mercy. And the times when he forgave Israel over and over again, uh, the great acts and deeds that God did for his people. Uh, which we have to keep in mind, God had a covenant relationship with the nation Israel and he's, he's doing things for them. He did discipline them uh, and he did uh, send judgment on pagan,
2: mm-hmm.
1: demonically inspired nations during that time. They we get the New Testament and we think, well, everything's okay now, Jesus is here. But then they, people kind of stop reading after the gospels. They forget that there's the rest of the New Testament. And if they just keep on reading, they'll find that this same Jesus that was so nice and walked around in sandals and died for our sins legitimately, is coming back again. And he's now this glorified Christ. And so even the book of Revelation begins with a vision of the glorified, exalted Jesus, and it resembles that Christ in no way. In fact, mm. it's it's almost like another Christ. It's not, but it shows us the glory of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. He's coming to bring discipline to his church. He's coming to bring judgment to the world in the form of the sealed trumpet, and bowl judgments. In fact, it's that same Jesus that unleashes the very first judgment in Revelation 6-1 that that unleashes the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And Mm -hmm. then you get to chapter 19, and he comes back on a white horse, accompanied Mm -hmm. by the saints and the angels, and he slaughters perhaps hundreds of millions of people Mm -hmm. with just the word of his mouth. And then after that, there's judgment. There's the great white throne judgment where he... Throws people into the lake of fire.
3: Right. So
1: yeah. So the idea that the Old Testament is is the angry God, the New Testament is the nice guy. It's really the same God, and He's loving in in both Testaments, but He's also righteous and just and holy in both Testaments. Yeah. And we yeah. can kind of get the
2: helicopter, you know, uh, panoramic view. We can see that a little bit better.
3: You got to read all the way to the end of the book.
2: Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, One of my absolutely. favorite lines in your book with regard to that is that the, the criticism of the God being an angry, mad God. Pre-flood that he wiped out those millions of people, and I'm quoting your book directly. He didn't give them just one last chance, but he gave them one very long chance. So they had 120,
3: 120 years.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they gave them 120 years to see it differently. So I, I think that's a false setup as far as a uh, an angry God only. So um,
3: all right, I had a question. Um, so got God. God calls noah the righteous man to preach to the world and the world just continues to degrade and to further and further sin and finally he judges it and he floods the world now many people have questions about the mechanics of that how did he flood the world you talk about the canopy theory which goes all the way back to henry morris in the early 60s can you explain that for our listeners who might have never heard the canopy theory how did the world actually flood
1: yeah, uh, the The idea is that there was essentially this this canopy of of clouds that held back the the waters of the heavens that filtered the ultraviolet rays of the sun, which some people believe that's one of the reasons why people lived for so long mm-hmm. because they, they weren't affected by all this atmospheric um, you know poisoning type things. That's one theory. Uh, but the Bible also talks about the great fountains of the deep. And I talk about how the the underwater or the under earth reservoirs that are that we know exist. That's where most of this water really came from. And now what is it? You know, 72, 80 percent of the earth is is now water. So, yeah, it was kind of a both. And, you know, I, I, I joke about the movie with Russell Crowe. I tell people you know the only thing I think they got right was the actual flood part you know mm-hmm. think that these geysers kind of burst out of the ground and all the torrential violent rainstorm coming down from the sky. I mean it was it was a violent episode uh, but obviously God had that water in reserve He had it up top He didn't want to do that but because of man's sin it sort of you know mm-hmm. punctured that and caused that judgment to fall on humanity.
3: Um, I'll jump in again Um, what this is kind of different question what are the three books that have affected you the most uh, as a believer I like to ask that of all our authors Mm -hmm. yeah
1: I think one of the the first I I wasn't raised in the church um, uh, by age 16 I'd never read anything deeper than a comic book so uh, so I'm thinking Jesus Green Lantern I mean come on you know so so the, the day that I became a Christian, it, it was a radical conversion for me. I mean, I was, I was your basic, you know, drug dealing hippie kind of guy. But I, I had a day and night transformation where it wasn't dramatic in terms of emotion. It was just a, a, a willful decision and a receiving of the salvation that God offered. But the, the very same night I became a Christian, um, the 16 year old uh, fellow student that led me to Christ gave me his Bible. And I began reading the scriptures and that got me hungry for truth. I wanted to know more. So the first year I was a Christian at age 16, I read uh, over 50 different books uh, Mm -hmm. by people like A.W. Tozer and uh, began to read uh, J.I. Packer. Uh, and people like that, and uh, A.W. Pink, and you know some of these people that you know you usually don't get to. Do you get the seminary? Right, light I, reading. Yeah, just some light reading. It <laughs> took me a year to get through Knowing God by J.I. Packer, but yeah. I have to yeah. say that that book probably marked me just about more than just about any any book I, I've ever read. I mean, early on in my life, I read Shadow of the Almighty uh, by Elizabeth Elliot about her husband Jim Elliot. That from a mm-hmm. kind of a sacrifice for Christ kind of standpoint mm-hmm. uh, kind of did a lot for me. And of course, A.W. Pink, the attributes of God. Um, and then, you know, I read so many books. I mean, it's kind of hard, it's like the books behind you, it's kind of hard to go and right. pick out one. Uh, but I, I would say that Packer, you know, the, the books that, that J.I. Packer wrote were very impactful for me. I mean, even mm-hmm. going back and reading as much of some of these guys, like, um, um, oh gosh, the, uh, the Puritan, who wrote uh, The Death of Death, uh, John Owen, you know, Damn. I mean, th- those things sure. are just really, I mean, you, you can maybe read a paragraph in a month, you know, and try to absorb what they're saying because their thoughts are so deep, uh, but just kind of dipping my toe in some of those things have really helped me. Of course, then going to seminary, being challenged, but to read some of the, the great works uh, of literature, and so, um, but then, you know, obviously some prophecy mm-hmm. guys, John Walvoord and Dwight Pentecost, and those
2: guys mm-hmm. have had super
1: impacts on my life.
2: What well, you didn't read How <laughs> Lindsay's the Late Great Planet Earth? I actually did. I I did. That was one of the, I think that was one
1: of the 50. I read that first and it, and it like, wow. Okay. Jesus is going to come back. I didn't know that. And this is what's going to happen to the world. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about the flood and we've talked about history, but, um, more specifically, like let's talk about how it applies to us today and let's look at, um, in Matthew 24, right. The Olivet discourse, you have Jesus talking about end times. Right. And so, in matthew twenty four and in the Olivet discourse, it mentions as in the days of Noah. So those days of Noah, are we in them today? Should we look forward to them in the tribulation? Um are we like, what is specifically are the days of Noah referring to when it comes to the future?
1: Yeah, I think he's referring to the tribulation period specifically. Mm-hmm. I mean that whole passage of matthew twenty four and twenty five, I believe, uh, Jesus is speaking to his Jewish brethren about their future Jewish yeah. brethren and about yeah. a time uh, when Christ identifies there's going to be uh, a time where there'll be false Christs. Uh, unlike there are today, there's going to be the abomination of desolation, the signs mm-hmm. in the sky. Christ talks about so really unpacks sort of a mini apocalypse in, in Matthew 24 and then Matthew 25 is all about how to be prepared for it through these you know these parables. So I think the days of Noah s- specifically refer to. If you want to talk about a parallel. You go from Genesis 6 to Revelation, Revelation. Genesis 6 to, to Daniel 9, uh, Daniel 11. You've got those parallels. So I, I think that seven-year period of the tribulation is when uh, the earth is going to see the people uh, marking or mirroring, rather, the days of Noah, uh, exactly how Christ uh, talked about it. And it's going to get worse and worse as mm-hmm. it leads up to the second coming of Christ.
0: Yeah. And you'll see a lot of people would say, oh, we're in the days of Noah. And there's a lot of similarities to the days of Noah, but more specifically in that context, it's referring to the tribulation. So a few yeah. verses before that, um, it talks about this generation will not pass away until they see these, until they see this. Um, and let me pull up the exact, let me read that exactly. So I'm not taking it out of context. Verse 34 of yeah, 24. Generation? Yeah. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, and this is kind of outside, but we were just talking about it today. Is that referring to the generation of Jesus' time? Is that referring to the generation that's going to see these signs? Like, what exactly is that referring to?
1: Well, there was a book came out in 1988 by a guy named Ed Weisenhund who said uh, there was 88 reasons why Christ was coming back in 1988. Mm-hmm. and he based it basically on this verse here because mm-hmm. he said 40 years is a generation right. and Israel became a nation in 48 so mm-hmm. 40 yeah. years of 88 so you know Christ is going to come back well he didn't come back and so he wrote another book called 89 reasons yep. why Christ is coming back and I got them both got <laughs> <get> them both <laughs> okay. just for fun. Oh, cool yeah uh, The collectors editions yeah uh, but he just <laughs> could keep updating I think this is where having really a sound hermeneutic, sound Bible study methods really does serve us well. Because when you look at the exact context of what Christ is saying there, first of all, we know he's talking about the tribulation period. And then he says in verse 33, even so you too, when you see all these things, what are all these things? Well, all the Mm. signs that we know are going to happen in the tribulation. tribulation. When you see these things, recognize that the Messiah is right at the door. Then he says, truly, I say to you, this generation, the generation that sees these signs will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So he's basically saying that this tribulation times, is not going to last forever, that the generation that sees the signs of the end will witness the end. I think that's kind of a paraphrase of what Christ is saying there. So yeah. it's referring to the generation of the tribulation, specifically the the Jewish uh, generation. There,
3: well, people see things happening like earthquakes and wars and all of that, and they say this must be those signs. I kind of look at them as like Braxton Hicks, you know yes. those, <laughs> those those kind of pains that women have before they actually set in. Well, what would you and, know yeah. about that? I experienced it several <laughs> times, believe me, uh, at least through my wife. Uh, so. Yeah, what is that's true? Yeah, go
1: ahead. I think the the biblical birth pangs Jesus is speaking of will happen during the tribulation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, those Braxton Hicks contractions, uh, number one, they feel like the real thing. Uh, And number two, they only happen to women who are pregnant. Number three, they only happen to women who are in their second or third trimester. So they're not the real thing that that immediately leads to, to the delivery room of the hospital. But you can't get them unless you're actually pregnant.
3: Exactly. So mm-hmm. the
1: fact that we're seeing all these previews of the prophecies that are going to take place in Revelation tells us that we're in the season. I think mm-hmm. that's what it tells us that that you know the storm clouds are gathering. We just hadn't felt the rain yet.
2: Yeah. Let's continue on with uh, what I think is the main point of your book: the comparison of the pre-flood days, what the culture was like then, and what the culture is like today pre-rapture days. Or whatever that is we spent some time talking about the sexual perversions uh, of of both periods uh let's talk a little bit more about we touched on it briefly but the godlessness how has mm-hmm. godlessness crept into uh our country you know into in, well into the world actually and uh the the uh the, let's call it we did not hit had this one either the cheapness of life life is just on mm-hmm. um, you know in there, we can get into the abortion thing if we want to, but the godlessness—how does that crept into our culture?
1: Yeah, well, I think first of all, biblically, I mean, you think of Second Thessalonians chapter two verse three. It says that before that the antichrist and the day of the Lord comes, there'll be the apostasy or the falling away from the faith. And I think we're we're definitely seeing that uh, right now, where seventy-five to one hundred and fifty churches close every week in America. Uh, where a third of, of pastors today don't have a biblical worldview. Uh, many believe that the, like a third of them believe the Holy Spirit is just a symbol of God's power. And it goes on and on and on from mm. the inerrancy of scripture all the way down to how we view, you know, sexuality. So there's definitely a falling away uh, that is happening both doctrinally and morally. Um, and then the other passage is in Romans 1, where we see that when a yeah. culture rejects God, and we would certainly have a culture in America, when we reject the revealed Evidence of God, both externally through creation and internally through the conscience and basic moral codes embedded within all of Mm us. Mm And God says, if you reject that truth, then I'm going to turn the lights down on you, and you're not going to be able to see as clearly anymore. And so the the progression of that passage says they begin to speculate. So think about if a person's walking in a dark room, they don't know what's there; they're just Mm -hmm. speculating about what's there. So now we're literally to the point we're creating new realities
0: in our mm-hmm. world
1: today that don't exist. And that's all because we've rejected the clearly revealed truth of God externally and internally. And of course, then that leads to all sorts of, you know, deviance and rejecting God and idolatry. Mm-hmm. But the, the interesting verse about that, gentlemen, is in verse 22, where it says, professing themselves to be wise, they become yeah, fools. Fools. And, you know, it's interesting it's that that mm-hmm. word fool there is the Greek word moros. We get our word moron from, uh, which is an, an English word coined from the Greek word around 1916 by a, a psychologist named uh, Professor Goddard. But he was basically saying when you're mentally weak, when you are unable to form rational thought, uh, when you're feeble in your, in your mind and you're thinking, you're a moron. And so God is basically saying that when you reject the revealed truth about me, and you now claim you're smarter than me, you know more than what my Bible says or what I've created in nature, then you're basically a moron. And uh, mm-hmm. that's a horrible place to be because yeah. being, yeah. uh, being a moron leads to being immoral uh, mm-hmm. in the rest of that passage. So that, that is definitely where we are. I mean, we don't really have to be smart people or discerning people to look around to see how our, our country has so devolved. We kicked God out of the schools. Uh, We've kicked him out of government. We don't want him on any of our political uh, platforms. uh, We have uh, taken all influence of the church and we pushed it to the side. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're trying to silence the church to cancel Christians uh, just for saying basic things that are true about God. So, yeah, uh, we've told God we basically voted God off the island. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point where God says, if that's what you want, then wish granted. And so that's why it says three times in that Romans passage, God go. gave them over. Yep. It's a judicial uh, judgment. It's a what I call God's abandonment wrath or His abandonment protocol, where He He removes Himself and hardens the very hearts of those who have hardened themselves against God. Uh, same thing He did mm-hmm. to Pharaoh. Same thing He'll do to the tribulation generation in Second Thess uh, two eight through ten.
3: You, you talk about how godless the society is, and you go into specifics of it in your book, which was written in 2013. Well, like the snowball going off the mountain, it just picked up speed. So now the, the identity of people is being attacked, the very identity of your personhood. How do you think that relates to this um, as in the times of Noah?
1: Well, I think it's on two two fronts. Number one, uh, you know, Jeremiah 79 says the heart is deceitful and mm-hmm. wicked above all things who can know it. Uh, you know, Romans 3 tells us that no man seeks God and that we're dead in our sins, Ephesians 2. So we, we're broken. I mean, we are broken and dead and left to ourselves. Uh, we're going to come up with these alternate realities uh, in the world. And the second thing is through just satanic deception in the world today. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus calls Satan. In John 12, the, the ruler of this world, Paul called them the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. There is a great global deception going on right now, all the way down to the, mm-hmm. to the individual level uh, on planet mm-hmm. Earth where people, even Christians uh, who've been in church all their lives are wondering, well, I guess we should just accept them. they were born that way, that kind of thing. So we've lost all sense of a biblical grid through which to see the world. And so through just human self-deception and through satanic deception, uh, I see this as really grooming uh, the planet for ultimately the man of sin. The Bible says Antichrist will come on the scene in the last days. And, you know, to, to people who are gullible enough through the right crisis, and he'll be able to, uh, in essence, control the whole world.
3: So you see this as part of that grooming process?
1: I do. I think I mm-hmm. think this, the, the, the whole fact that we— we put God out of the picture, we can invent our own universe and our own mind. uh, That uh, sets us up for Mm self-worship and to do anything that we want. And then the crisis comes along, the government comes in and says, hey, we'll take care of you. And I think worldwide, we're seeing that happen really all over the world, but Mm -hmm. that the world's coming together as well. So you get that Mm -hmm. immoral component on one hand, that self-deception component, Mm -hmm. and then Satan comes in and says, I can use that Mm -hmm. uh, to get you to to come onto my side
0: yeah yeah so take it one quick question just take it a step further have we gotten to the point of days of noah like have we gotten to that point of evil of days of noah we're up here or are we more like kind of down a little bit
1: i, I see it as sort of like a, a car on a hill and you've released the parking brake that mm-hmm. we're just gaining velocity okay. with every day uh, and so we're not completely there because w- when we get completely there, we'll be at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think we're uh, well on our way. We're, we're gaining speed. Mm-hmm. And that is why it's so important. You know, just like in Noah's day, as as he is thinking about, hey, there's going to come a day where I'm going to hammer this last nail and mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be game time. And I think we're approaching the game time. I think we know we're mm-hmm. late in the fourth quarter where like every Every football team has a, has a two-minute offense. You know, it's like we're in that two-minute drill. However long that ends up being, I don't know. But I just know that God wants us to have a sense of purposeful urgency about our lives right now.
2: Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, earlier, let's, and I'd like to elaborate on it, uh, God, has his, God has a witness out there. He has both an external witness, witnesses, and an internal witness so that we're, not, we're without excuse Let's elaborate on that a little bit more for our folks that are listening to so they can understand that God has left here among us testimony that he does indeed exist, but we're ignoring it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I used to have people say to me, hey, if God would just show up and prove himself to me, I'd I'd believe in him. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, well, you probably wouldn't because he already showed up and people didn't believe in him, Uh, you know, when Christ came the first time. But yeah, God says in Romans chapter one, in Psalm 19, in Genesis one, that he created the world. And it says in Romans one, that when you look at the creation, you can come to logical conclusions about the creator, uh, that he's divine, that he's supernatural, uh, that he is powerful and creative, and that he's bigger than you. Uh, And kind of the bottom line lesson is there is a God somewhere and you're not it. You know, that's kind of the, the point of the lesson. And so it begins it make you think, OK, well, then, all right, well then, who is he? And, you know, Scripture says that if we seek God, that he'll allow us to, to find him. Uh, so God has put in creation evidence of his attributes, the fact that he exists and some of his attributes. Now, that's what theologians call general revelation. Uh, we don't know God's name. We don't know what he's up to. We don't know what his plan is. And that's where we kind of get more specific to a specific revelation, and that's the scripture and the person and work of Jesus Christ. So then you look at the Bible and what the Bible gives us, and the Bible is simply the record of God's written revelation to man, Mm -hmm. uh, to mankind. And so we see what God's done through the scripture and and what he's revealed, and we go, how do you know that's true? Well, the Jesus that he talks about actually rose from the dead, and that validates both the scripture and the scripture validates him. So you've got that, that external witness that's general and specific, and then Back to the internal witness, you know, every culture on planet Earth has a basic moral code. And mm-hmm. ironically, uh, that moral code uh, ends up lining up with some of the Ten Commandments. So mm-hmm. that basically, if there's a if there's a moral law, then there must be a moral law giver uh, that we didn't just invent these things. And we all had a giant meeting on the Earth that said, OK, we're all going to agree. We're not going to hit each other or kill each other, or steal each other's wives or lie. No one had to tell anyone that. We, we learned that that's innate is kind of the basic operating system that God's given. Mm-hmm. us. So I think those are two strong evidences. And if those are kind of, you know, the first domino that gets someone thinking about, well, maybe there is a moral argument. Who is he? Well, examine the claims of Christ. Jesus did claim to be that God. So let's look at him and find out what do we know about Christ that tells us that he actually backed up those claims. Mm-hmm.
2: Nice. Very nice. Um... So let me do a one more thing. Actually, I have a very important question I want to ask you at the end. It's the most important one I could possibly think of. But right now, Scott knows where I'm going. Probably with this one. Um, the church. The church is here. Isn't the church supposed to be countercultural? Isn't the church supposed to be the evidence of you know the people of God? Isn't the church supposed to be the salt and the light that's in, that's dealing with our culture? What's going on with the church?
3: You were pretty tough on the church, church, and your. Uh, I don't remember which chapter it was, but you basically dismantled it.
2: Yeah, you
1: should read the follow-up book called "Wait, the Bride." That's uh, <laughs> I get a little more specific in, in that one. But yeah, I mean, the, the church is the bride of Christ, mm-hmm. and uh, Jesus said in John 14 to his disciples, "If I go away, I'm going to come back. I'm going to build a place for you in heaven. I'm going to come back and receive you to myself." He was talking about this Hebrew. Uh, our Jewish wedding motif, wedding custom. And uh, Christ be, has betrothed uh, to us as the groom to the bride. And he wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be pure uh, to, re- to receive him when he comes back to take us to heaven at the rapture. But yeah, the church is, uh, you know, Timothy says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And so we're supposed to be a, a a, a, a herald of the truth of God in a, in a dark world and light to a dark world. Uh, and right now, much of the church is waning in its commitment to the truth. That's the first thing. And then secondly, just its, you know, its penetration into society as the light of God. We're already, we're already in society. We're embedded in society for the most part, but we're not being the kind of light and witness that Christ wants us to be. And we, we carry the cure to the disease. And yet we're not sharing that with people that are out there. So I think it begins in the church. It begins, we got to have a strong church to have a strong believing witness out there in the world. But Christ said, you're the salt. Salt is a preservation. Uh, he mm-hmm. says, you're the light. You know, light exposes the darkness. And we have to be that for a world. And unless we do that, there's really no other way that people are going to come to Christ other than people tell them about it.
3: Doesn't the church have to wane, though, in its power? Uh, in the world system t- for the Lord to return, I mean, isn't that isn't that part of the whole plan?
1: Well, I think God would have His church not wane; He would have His church be strong right. all the way up up into the end. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing is the church is waning, and it's kind of it's almost like this: that if you know the Bible calls uh, the Holy Spirit the Restrainer in Second Thessalonians, I believe that's the power of the Holy Spirit through the church the, in the church age, the age of grace. And yet, what what instead of restraining evil, uh, we're poking holes in in the levee, right. and we're allowing evil to to really and worldliness and worldly thinking yeah. to kind of bleed into the church and flood into the church, where many churches are no different than you know some secular club's counterpart, you know, that's out there, right. and we're trying to bring a lot of the world into the church, and we think that if we can just put on a good enough show on Sunday morning, that non Christians who naturally hate God. Are going to want to flock to our church to hear what we have to say and uh and of course you know people do have large churches where they do that they're tickling ears it's self-help seminars i love what one pastor said it's uh many churches are a rock show followed by a, a light show followed by a, a ted talk you know it's just uh, people <laughs> it's trying to, to get make people feel good and you know there are things in scripture that are great comforts to us but a pastor's job is to equip the saints to send them out into the world, he's the quarterback. He calls the play and says, "Now let's go run the play out into the world." Mm-hmm. And yet, many times we're just gathering a groove on ourselves, feel good, and then go home, and that's it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Church is not doing its job, um, right? Should we bring up the Titanic? <laughs> did, did you want to do that, Scott? Bring up the Titanic.
3: Well, you compare the church to the Titanic with the uh, in the culture with the icebergs. And I, I thought you made a really, really good, important point. Just because we see icebergs doesn't mean the ship's going to sink. It, but it means we're, we are in the right waters. So do yeah. you, you want to elaborate on that a little bit as far as to the prophetic calendar?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we see the warning signs out there. We see the, like you said, the icebergs. We see the landmines, the water mines that are out there. The, the church's job is to navigate around those things and to warn others about them. Mm-hmm. And some of the, and I use this term you know, loosely, the prophetic voices that are out there, people that are talking about what God says about Bible prophecy in the future, right. are, are sort of sounding a warning saying, hey, iceberg ahead. And that's what the Titanic received. They received several messages uh, from other ships saying, hey, this, there's a lot of icebergs out there. And uh, they basically told them to shut up. You know, I've got to mm-hmm. send these other messages out there. So, again, like the days of Noah, we're, we're too preoccupied in the present and self and what's right in front of us and entertainment and that type of thing. Seven hours a day on our phones is basically what most people are spending now. And so with, with that kind of mindset, you're not looking for icebergs. You're looking for the next meal in the dining hall or when's the show going to start, mm-hmm. you know, or when to go swimming in the heated swimming pool or something like that. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I mean, the, the church is sort of sailing along, you know, for the most part. And, um, and I see a lot of people, in fact, the, the number one email that I get from people today is, where can I find a I'm Bible a church. teaching church?
2: Oh, That's, yeah.
1: It's the biggest thing that I get, yeah. and I get it all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. People are hungry. Christians are hungry. They want to be fed. So they end up getting fed from online, uh, from podcasts like this, from Christian, mm-hmm. really good, strong teaching shows online, that type of thing. Uh, but And some of them are having house church, you know. So yeah. there's some of that going on as well in our country. So there's a strong need for strong biblical uh, preaching today.
0: Yeah. And you're talking about just pointing out the icebergs and you don't see that today, right? The iceberg is that there is a coming rapture, right? There is coming tribulation and there is coming. Um, there's the second coming of Jesus. And that's just not taught in churches. Um, and even some Bible believing, maybe they're teaching salvation correctly, but they completely ne- neglect the end times. Yeah. And so it is important yeah. to understand. Secondary
3: doctrine. Yeah. That's so, what I hear. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, it's secondary doctrine doesn't
1: it's, matter. It's, it's, it's very important that, that we talk about this because, you know, almost a third of the Bible is was prophetic at the time that it was written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you think about this, I mean, God wrote the Bible. It's his book. And I mean, as an author, I've written almost 40 books now. I think very carefully about how I close out my book. I want the reader to shut that last page and go, yes, mm-hmm. you know, I needed that. Well, God did the same thing, only much better. He wrote the last book he ever wrote was a book that was 95 percent future prophetic. And so that tells us something Mm -hmm. that God wants to give us a heads up on history. He wants to show us what's going to happen so that we can warn others and so that we can be prepared for what happens before that. Mm -hmm. And so so many pastors ignore that. They avoid uh, prophecy like the plague. I mean, that's because they want to build a church. Yeah, I so think it won't draw a crowd right. because it's, you know, divisive or, you know, and many pastors themselves, let's be honest, a lot of pastors are, are bivocational. Maybe they didn't go to seminary. Uh, it takes a lot of study to study yeah. prophecy. Yep. I mean, it's it's not the low hanging fruit of Psalm 23 or, you know, Matthew, you know, chapter 11, come unto me. I mean, those are kind of easy to understand. Prophecy requires study. That's why we call it Bible study, by the way. And uh, And a lot of pastors can't or won't do that. And then I think also, you know, I had a pastor one time tell me, he said, the reason I don't bring anyone to speak on this subject is because I think prophecy is just a hobby for old people. You know, it's kind of like the the old gray hairs. I mean, they like that kind of thing. But what I found is a huge groundswell of younger people. I'm talking like as far down as 10 years old, Hmm. all the way up to like young couples are really beginning to be turned on to Bible prophecy and more so Hmm. discerning the times. Understanding their world in light of what their Bible tells them about what their God is going to do, and so I do see it growing. But on the whole, people will avoid the subject uh, like yeah. it's a keep off the grass sign or something.
0: Yep, yep. But I really do appreciate you writing a book like this, where it clearly okay. describes what the days of Noah were and how it applies to today and where we're living right now. So I appreciate you writing a book Thank like you. this. Yeah, it was well done. Yeah. All right, Gabe. Well really um, where, uh Let's. Wait. Did Wait, I've got
2: oh, one, one vital okay, go question I've got to ask him. One vital question. All right, we're all waiting. I know, I know. I've been, It's been sitting on my mind the whole interview. And here Did it is. Did you forget it yet? <laughs> I, <laughs> I am old. Here is the question. Have you been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky?
1: <laughs> mm. I actually have co-written a book with Ken Ham uh, huh? about... Uh, that's right. About teenagers coming back to the church It's called Ready ah. to Return. And uh, when we were writing that book, they were actually building the Ark. Uh, mm. But I've not actually been there personally. But I've everybody tells. In fact, I was on the plane flying from Dallas to Sao Paulo, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil last week, and there was an older couple from California. They had just come from seeing the Ark, and so uh, the, it's really reaching
2: millions,
3: I mean, literally millions it of is.
2: people.
3: Gary um, was on the so. first Ark. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I actually have. I contributed to the project early on, and so uh, I got to see it during the process while it was being built by to. several stages. Mm-hmm. And um so I have a an actual T shirt there that says "I helped build the
0: ark." Oh, that's great!
2: <laughs> I love
0: it. <laughs> but um, where, what? Yeah, where can, where can we find your your yeah. books? A website? YouTube channel? Get what, what are some resources yeah. you have for our listeners?
1: Just dot uh, jeffkinley.com is where kind of everything is housed. Uh, I do a weekly TV show called uh, Jeff Kinley Live on hischannel.com. Uh, mm-hmm. That's just 30 minutes of Bible prophecy every week. I do two podcasts a week. And uh, God's just got wow. me doing a lot of things right now. But uh, but yeah, it's a great time to be alive. It's a really exciting time to be alive because, mm-hmm. you know, we could witness the return of Christ. and But even even also with that is the fact that we get to see people come to Christ as we share the message of hope. And mm-hmm. I just tell folks, you know what? Like Noah, the, the, the door to the ark is open right now. I yeah. mean, it's standing wide open. It's not been shut by God. And as long as that door is open, that means we're in the day and age of grace. And so yeah. now is the acceptable time. Come to Christ.
3: Yeah. Believe, trust, receive. Yep. Yeah. Amen. All right. Well, we want to tell you how much we appreciate you. Absolutely. And uh, keep up the the good work. God bless you. And uh, Gabe, you. you want to pray for Jeff before we um, stop the recording?
0: Yep, let's go right in. Uh, Jeff and the Father, I just um, thank you for this time. Um, last hour, we're, we were able to just talk about your word, talk about end times, talk about um, the days of Noah. Lord, and I think that we have that example of um, evil being punished, Lord. And I pray that we live each day realizing that you are just God. You are merciful and gracious, right? You gave us that door to enter. And I praise you that um, uh, we've made that decision to trust in you as our Savior. And I pray that we'd recognize that other people haven't. And I pray that we'd um, share the gospel with them, right? Um, And also pursue you in our everyday life, realizing that there will come a time when you return, when you come receive us to you, Lord. And I pray that we live and look forward to that day. Uh, I pray for um, Mr. Kinley, Lord, just thank you for his... um, the books he's written, the lives he's changed, and I pray that you keep him going strong, Lord, over these next few years. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen.
3: Thank
0: you, Jeff. Hey,
1: guys, thanks so all much. Right, thank now, you, tell Jeff. me God where where, where are you guys? I so, mean, where are y'all pastoring and stuff?
3: I pastor a home church in my home here, Maidens, <laughs> wow. Virginia. I retired. Okay, okay. I retired after twenty years in Washington State and moved here to be near our grandchildren. Gary just well, retired. Yeah, I just retired it,
2: from full time church. Pastor of ministry. Uh I've had a church here that I actually planted in uh I've been here seventeen been here 17 years. Mm. Uh we're turning it over to a young guy. So Chicago. Uh, yeah, Chicago area. Okay. Yeah. Western right. suburbs of Chicago.
0: Fantastic. Yep. And I'm at I'm well, at where to currently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't pastored a church yet. That's great. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, that's great. Well, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I'm glad you're doing this. You know, I, I think that um, you know, doing a podcast like this is it's so cool because all you do is just record and send it out there and then God just takes it from there. Yep. And um, that's what someone recommended that I do. And I just I didn't know what I was doing. I just started <laughs> teaching, you know, and talking mm-hmm. through the Bible. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, boom, you know, so it's just really neat to be able to have this kind of ministry. And again, it's kind of like the Roman road of the old days it could take the gospel all over the world.
3: That's yeah. true. Mm-hmm. Well, we appreciate you being with us. Yeah. Yes. God bless you. And uh, when you write your next book, we'll probably give you a call. Be glad right. to do it. Thank you, sir. See God you bless you. Thank you. Good listeners All next right. time.
0: Bye-bye. God bless Thank you for listening to another episode of the Book Podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, like, follow, subscribe on any podcasting platform on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Simply type in at hearthebookpod, the Book Pod at the Book Pod. Thank you. See
1: you next time.